Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. This woman in black leather bondage underwear and fishnet stockings I came to, and after this huge wave hit, I came to, and she was standing over me with her legs apart, and she put her face right down next to mine and said, Is it strong enough for you, asshole? Shall we play a game? (laughs) And so, because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process, which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Daisy. <laughs> but this is fantastic, strange love. How can it be triggered automatically? Well, it's remarkably simple to do that. When you merely wish to bury bombs, there's no limit to the size. After that, they are connected to a gigantic complex of computers. That fateful day when stinking bits of slime first crawled from the sea and shouted to the cold stars, I am man. Our greatest dread has always been the knowledge of our own mortality. But tonight, we shall hurl the gauntlet of science into the frightful face of death itself. Tonight, we shall ascend into the heavens. We shall mock the earthquake. We shall command the thunders and penetrate into the very womb of impervious nature herself. Skynet gets built. In three years, Cyberten will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberten computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Turn the game console off right now. Skynet fights back. Yes, it launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they offensive? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Behold, my doomsday weapon. Don't worry, it's a game. It's a game just like usual. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. The mission is a failure. Cut the power right now. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. 
ruin your eyes playing so close to the TV. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. I hear it's amazing when the famous purple stuffed worm in Flapjaw's space with the tuning fork does a raw blink on Harry Carey Rock. I need scissors. 61. <laughs> Where are the feasts we were promised? Where is the wine, the new wine, dying on the vine? Raiden, are you receiving? We're still here. How's that possible? The AI was destroyed! Only GW. Who are you? To begin with, we're not what you'd call human. Over the past 200 years, a kind of consciousness formed layer by layer in the crucible of the White House. It's not unlike the way life started in the oceans four billion years ago. The White House was our primordial soup, a base of evolution. We are formless. We are the very discipline and morality that Americans invoke so often. How can anyone hope to eliminate us? As long as this nation exists, so will we. Cut the crap! If you're immortal, why would you take away individual freedoms and censor the net? <laughs> Jack, don't be silly. Don't you know that our plans have your interests, not ours, in mind? What? Jack, listen carefully, like a good boy. The mapping of the human genome was completed early this century. As a result, the evolutionary log of the human race lay open to us. We started with genetic engineering. And in the end, we succeeded in digitizing life itself. But there are things not covered by genetic information. What do you mean? Human memories, ideas, culture, history. Genes don't contain any record of human history. Is it something that should not be passed on? Should that information be left at the mercy of nature? We've always kept records of our lives. Through words, pictures, symbols, from tablets to books. But not all the information was inherited by later generations. A small percentage of the whole was selected and processed, then passed on. Not unlike genes, really. That's what history is, Jack. But in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness, never fading, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretation, slander. All this junk data, preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate. It will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. Right. You seem to think that our plan is one of censorship. Are you telling me it's not? You're being silly. What we propose to do is not to control content, but to create context. Create context? The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards development of convenient half-truths. Just look at the strange juxtapositions of morality around you. Billions spent on new weapons in order to humanely murder other humans. Rights of criminals are given more respect than the privacy of their victims. Although there are people suffering in poverty, huge donations are made to protect endangered species. Everyone grows up being told the same thing. Be nice to other people. But beat out the competition. You're special. Believe in yourself and you will succeed. But it's obvious from the start that only a few can succeed. You exercise your right to freedom, and this is the result. 
all rhetoric to avoid conflict and protect each other from hurt. The untested truths spun by different interests continue to churn and accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness and value systems. Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed in truth. And this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. We're trying to stop that from happening. It's our responsibility as rulers. Just as in genetics, unnecessary information and memory must be filtered out to stimulate the evolution of the species. And you think you're qualified to decide what's necessary and not? Absolutely. Who else could wade through the sea of garbage you people produce, retrieve valuable truths, and even interpret their meaning for later generations? That's what it means to create context. I'll decide for myself what to believe and what to pass on. But is that even your own idea? Or something Snake told you? <sighs> That's the proof of your incompetence right there. You lack the qualifications to exercise free will. That's not true. I have the right. Does something like a self exist inside of you? That which you call self serves as nothing more than a mask to cover your own being. In this era of ready-made truths, self is just something used to preserve those positive emotions that you occasionally feel. Another possibility is that self is a concept you conveniently borrowed under the logic that would endow you with some sense of strength. That's crap! Is it? Would you prefer that someone else tell you? All right, then. Explain it to him. Jack, you're simply the best. And you got there all by yourself. <sighs> oh, what happened? Do you feel lost? Why not try a bit of soul-searching? Don't think you'll find anything, though. Ironic that although self is something that you yourself fashion, every time something goes wrong, you turn around and place the blame on something else. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. In denial, you simply resort to looking for another, more convenient truth in order to make yourself feel better. Leaving behind in an instant the so-called truth you once embraced. Should someone like that be able to decide what is truth? Should someone like you even have the right to decide? You've done nothing but abuse your freedom. You don't deserve to be free. We're not the ones smothering the world. You are. The individual is supposed to be weak, but far from powerless. A single person has the potential to ruin the world. And the age of digitized communication has given even more power to the individual. Too much power for an immature species. Building a legacy involves figuring out what is wanted and what needs to be done for that goal. All this you used to struggle with. Now we think for you. We are your guardians after all. You want to control human thought? Human behavior? Of course. Anything can be quantified nowadays. That's what this exercise was designed to prove. So you see, you're a perfect representative of the masses we need to protect. This is why we chose you. You accepted the fiction we've provided, 
obeyed our orders, and did everything you were told to. The exercise is a resounding success. Didn't I tell you that GW is still incomplete? But not anymore, thanks to you. Your persona, experiences, triumphs, and defeats are nothing but byproducts. The real objective was ensuring that we could generate and manipulate them. It's taken a lot of time and money, but it was well worth it considering the results. I think that's enough talk. It's time for the final exercise. Our beloved monsters, enjoy yourselves. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I'm very happy to have you here for my 20th episode. This is going to be a long one, and as you know, I decided to get a bit wild with that opening montage there. So I want to get right into the show, but before I do, I want to tell you just a little bit about what you just heard. I'm not even going to tell you how all the clips I played relate to the show. You're going to figure all that out on your own. I just want to give some credit. First, you heard Terrence McKenna. Talk about being straddled by a hallucinatory dominatrix, which I just couldn't pass up putting in there. Then you heard from Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Next up, a sampling of what is, in my humble and accurate opinion, the finest movie ever made, Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Specifically, the scene in which Dr. Frankenstein, pronounced Frankenstein, is being raised by a clanking platform like some devil arising from a mechanical hell to confront the heavens and breathe life into his blasphemous creation. Good shit. I call it the Ascension Speech, because I'm a nerd and I think about that speech often enough to have named it. Of course, the technical term for the sort of man-into-god transformation he's describing is apotheosis. Anyway, after that, obviously, was a clip from another one of the best movies ever made, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Got some more McKenna laughs sprinkled in after that, and uh, then we get a quick sampling from the 1994 Spider-Man cartoon. Used to love that show when I was a kid. It's actually where I first heard of the concept of a doomsday weapon or whatever. Now, I could have sworn in the show they called it a doomsday device, because that's how I remember it, but apparently it's actually a doomsday weapon. But I went with doomsday device. Oh well. Alright, so after Spider-Man, I threw in a couple lines from HAL 9000 in another Kubrick movie, which everyone knows, of course, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But I also threw in some cuts from Metal Gear Solid 2, The Sons of Liberty. That's also the source of the clip that makes up the majority of the introduction. So I've got to say a few words about Metal Gear Solid 2, because I'm afraid that some of you might not be aware of it. First of all, it's a video game. Now, I'm, I'm not a gamer. At all. But, I've played every single Metal Gear game, and honestly, they're a huge part of how I got into researching all this stuff that I do in the first place. It's a very long and very convoluted series, and I'm not even going to try to explain it here. Maybe I'll do a breakdown of it on the show at some point, though. It would be pretty worthwhile, I think. I mean, it's so good. It's so damn good. Anyway, Metal Gear Solid 2, which you just heard a clip from, came out in 2002, 20 years ago. And I think that clip speaks for itself. I mean, come on. How prescient can a goddamn video game be? 
an AI guardian class setting itself up to, as they say in the clip, create context, that is, deliberately construct narratives to manage the spread of information or misinformation on the internet for the greater good, the juxtaposition of biological genetics and cultural genetics, we call those memes now, it's all there. It's all there. And that line from the AI... You lack the qualifications to exercise free will. Damn! Like I said, I'm not a gamer, but I'd be surprised if there's another video game out there, or game series, that so masterfully exhibits the mentality of the technologically obsessed utopians who presume to rule over us in these early decades of the 21st century. And again, this game came out in 2002. I've been waiting a long time for the right moment to lay that clip on you guys, and Today's episode is it. So listen on, and you'll soon see why it's relevant to this show. At long last, I get to give a shout-out to the Metal Gear games, and direct you to them if you were someone who listened to that opening montage and said, What the hell is that clip from? Dig Metal Gear. But whatever you do, don't start with the game that I pulled today's clip from, because if you do, I promise you, you'll have no idea what in the hell is going on. Start from the beginning. You've got to earn Metal Gear Solid 2. Alright, now that I've said my piece on that, we can get on to the main event. As always, go to storyofnowhere.com for all of my stuff, including a preview of my new movie review show that I started with my friend, Nikki P. Subscribe to the Story of Nowhere podcast on your favorite podcast app if you haven't already, Tell a friend about the show, and consider buying the book at storyofnowhere.com slash book. Thank you all for hanging in for 20 episodes. Doomsday Device. Weapon of choice for over-the-top Cold War enemy states and cheesy Saturday morning cartoon supervillains. The Doomsday Device. The mysterious weapon of weapons, which, if it fell into the wrong hands, could destabilize all nations, poison all water supplies, infect all people, and permanently switch every radio station to NPR. The weapon which could grind all of human progress to a screeching halt, render all efforts futile, and bring about the end of civilization as we know it. You might remember the doomsday device from when you were a kid. Perhaps it conjures up memories of over-sugared weekends in front of the TV, of watching your favorite superhero, action figures now available, as they vanquish the forces of evil, action figures also available. Of course now, as an adult, the concept of the doomsday device seems pretty silly, right? I mean, what is it? What does it actually do? Now, as an adult, you know that the dreaded doomsday device is probably just a child-friendly euphemism for hydrogen bomb, and is really just a hack plot device used to get kids to root for the good guy and root against the bad guy, who's probably working for a country the American government doesn't like at the moment. 
primary propaganda for good boys and good girls to watch while they eat their three bowls of Reese's Puffs and beg their moms to buy them the new Spider-Man toy. But what if I told you that the doomsday device is real? This is the story of Nowhere, Episode 20, The Doomsday Device. Conquest So what is the dreaded doomsday device of which I speak? Well, if you know this show, then you probably already know that in order for me to really explain it, we're going to have to step back in time and look at a little bit of history. Today, just for a minute, we need to go back to 11th century England. Now, I know that for some, or maybe many of you, the title of this episode already gave it away. The title is The Doomsday Device, but it's spelled as if it were Domesday Device or Domesday Device. The reason for this is that I'm using the Middle English spelling of Doomsday, which was in fact the English of the day in the 11th century. And the reason anybody might care at all about the Middle English spelling of the word Doomsday is because in 1086, a book was compiled by the court of the king, and that book was called the Doomsday Book. Pretty badass, right? It is with this book that we must begin. The Doomsday Book was commissioned by William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard, who just 20 years earlier had seized what had been Anglo-Saxon England from its more or less native rulers and established himself, a Norman from modern-day France, as the new and rightful king thus beginning the tradition of England being ruled over by foreign monarchs, though now the monarchs are German. So, 20 years after he defeated the Saxon king Harold Godwinson at the famous Battle of Hastings, William commissioned this book, the Doomsday Book. It was given its name because its contents were said to be as everlasting as the earth itself, to be valid until Doomsday, the end of the world. I guess this means that if you went and dug up William the Conqueror and lit him up with 1.21 gigawatts or whatever it takes to bring him back, he'd say, yep, even in 2022, the Doomsday Book still applies. So what is it? With a name like Doomsday Book, you might assume that it'd be a big hit list of supporters of the old regime, or some kind of black magic book full of curses and incantations and such. In point of fact, the Doomsday Book is a big ledger. It's an account book, a catalog, and its purpose was to take account of all of the property in the kingdom, in order that King William might know the extent of the wealth of his realm, that he might properly tax his new subjects. The unsentimental, decisive way with things was the Norman way, giving a hard-nosed edge to the fuzzy tangles of contracts and customs that had been used by the Anglo-Saxons. And it was in this spirit that William, in 1085, held court in Gloucester and launched, arguably, the most extraordinary campaign of his entire reign, a campaign for information. We tend to think of William as more or less permanently in the saddle. He grew up in a world, after all, where authority was usually delivered on the blade of a sword. So it's all the more impressive that he seems to have understood instinctively that information could also be power. William the Conqueror was the first database king. 
His immediate need was to raise a tax, but the compilation of the Doomsday Book was more than just a glorified audit. It was a complete inventory of everything in the kingdom, shire by shire, pig by pig. Who had owned what before the coming of the Normans, and who owned what now? How much it had been worth then, and how much now? The king sent his men all over England into every shire and had them find out how many hundred hides there were in each shire, what land and cattle the king himself had in the county. So very narrowly did he have it investigated, there was no single hide, nor shame to relate it, but it seemed no shame to him, was there one ox or one cow left out and not put down in record. While some of the information was taken verbally by William Scribes, some must have owed its existence to Saxon records. In fact, the most extraordinary paradox about the Doomsday Book is that what we think of as a monument to the power and strength of the Normans owed itself to the advanced machinery of government left in place by the old Anglo-Saxon monarchy. And it was thanks to this that the data was collected at such lightning speed, less than six months. The results were presented to William here at Old Sarum, an ancient Iron Age fort inside which he'd built a spectacular royal palace. When he took hold of the Doomsday Book, it was as though William had been handed the keys to the kingdom all over again, as if he'd reconquered England, but this time statistically, because its information was more impregnable than any castle. It was called the Doomsday Book, after all, because it was said that its decisions were as final as the Last Judgment. The church itself holds Wenlock. There are 20 hides, four of which are exempt from tax under King Canute. There are 15 slaves. Two mills serve the monks, plus one fishery. Enough woodland to fatten 300 pigs and two hedged enclosures. Value now... 12 pounds. Two ceremonies took place on Lammas Day 1087 at Old Sarum. First, every noble in England gathered here to take an oath of loyalty to the king. But then came the handing over of the book, the ultimate weapon to keep them in line. Now nobody could hold back anything. And it was this book, the Doomsday Book, that made the gathering at Old Sarum unique in the history of feudal monarchy in Europe. For the book, ultimately, was England. For centuries after, this was the secret of English government, a partnership between the power of the landed classes and the authority of the state, between the guardians of the green acres and the keepers of the knowledge. In the right-hand corner, the gentry. In the left-hand corner, the civil service. And in between them, the eternal umpire, the king. As I said, and as the fellow in the clip just said, the book is called the Doomsday Book because it's supposed to be legitimate until Doomsday, Judgment Day, when Jesus finally comes back and says, all right, thanks for watching the store for me, I'll take it from here. But to me, for my purposes in this episode, and for purposes that I think are highly relevant to the modern world, the name Doomsday Book has an accidental double meaning. When a guy, or a lady, or a group of guys and ladies, 
sends people to count your stuff and write it all down so they can determine what you are and are not allowed to use. When someone comes to a land that's already populated and says, this is all mine now, and then has the gall and wherewithal to actually follow through on that, you're doomed. It's doomsday for you. Your goose is cooked. Your house is not really yours. Your livestock and your farm are not really yours. They're the king's. He's just letting you borrow them in exchange for some rent. By taking account of all property in the realm, William clearly defined what he considered to be within his jurisdiction, that is, what he has control over. By doing so, in effect, he unilaterally declared that all that was in England was actually his property. He's got the final say on where everything is and how it's to be used, and with the Doomsday Book, he knows where everything is and who's supposed to have it. And by knowing who has it, it becomes possible to take it. From the World History Encyclopedia Online, quote, Doomsday Book may have been compiled simply for William to know exactly who owned what in his kingdom. As the historian M. Morris puts it, the king now had a political weapon with which he could subdue any single rebellious baron, for, in an instant, William could order the confiscation of all the lands that that baron held according to Doomsday. Unquote. As best as he could muster, with all the available technology of the time, William placed his eye over everything in the kingdom. If the book says that your family's supposed to have ten pigs, and you pay a tax on those ten pigs, but then his lackeys come through two years later, and you're still paying the tax for ten pigs, but you've got fifteen now, there's going to be an issue. If you're supposed to have an acre of land, but his lackeys find out that you've built a little shed on the next acre over, or maybe they find you've been hunting on the next acre over, there's going to be an issue. If you remember your Robin Hood story, which takes place during the reign of William's great-great-grandson, you'll remember that this was the conflict of the plot. Normal people could no longer sustain themselves on the land that they had been allotted, and so then began hunting on King's Land, which of course belonged exclusively to the crown. So here's the situation we've got here. Everything in England belongs to the king, and he deigns to grant his lessers the privilege to use certain pieces of land in return for some financial or material payment. In short, the king owns it all. Everyone else only rents from him, on his terms. And you know what it means to rent. I'm not one of these modern anti-landlord people. I think that position is crazy, don't get me wrong. But you know the difference between renting and owning. If you own... You can do whatever. You can bulldoze half your house and leave all the faucets running if you want. But if you rent, it's a different story. You can't be putting nails in the wall to hang your stupid posters or be tearing up the carpet because you'd prefer some hardwood. Because it's not yours. Legally, under William the Conqueror, the latter is the case for everybody in England. It's that or leave the country, if he'll let you. And the Doomsday Book is the official document which keeps track of who is renting what. You see why this set of documents is so important. It not only gave William the Conqueror total power over all the material and livestock of England, but it gave him and his successors the actual means to exercise that power. Legal right over the property of England goes to William the Conqueror. Conqueror. You get the irony here, right? 
William didn't acquire all this property and all these pigs and all these peasant land workers by reaching some mutually beneficial consensual agreement with the previous property owner. He conquered. In common speak, he stole it. He stole it all. He came from another country and killed the guys running the show and said, Well, mine now. Consider the irony in this, the hypocrisy. William came and took by force the property that already existed in England and then declared it all to be his, in effect. Okay, but when a starving peasant steals one of the king's deer by hunting in an area where he's not supposed to, he's a thief and a criminal. But why? Why is his act of theft and force illegitimate, while the conqueror's is neither? Imagine some dude from two counties over breaks into your house. You get into a fight with him, but he beats you in the end, kills your spouse and your kids and your two adorable dogs and your parakeet, and then the legal authorities say, well, I guess the house is his now. That'd obviously be ridiculous. Let's say that this guy then goes and gets some buddies together and takes over the whole street, the whole neighborhood, and the authorities say, well, it's theirs now. But then, one of the dispossessed ex-homeowners hops a fence one night into his old yard to snag one of his tomatoes out of the garden that he grew, and the authorities arrest him for theft and trespassing. Absurd, right? But apparently, that's just how things worked in the 11th century. And I don't just mean that William just came in and took the crown by force and nobody could say anything about it. I mean that after he tore through England and claimed it as his own... The highest authority of the day, the Roman Catholic Church, essentially, they said, well, it's yours now. So, that's what happened, and it is what it is now, and there's nothing anyone can do about it, so let's just get back to the Doomsday Book. The World History Encyclopedia Online outlines the raw data contained in the massive catalog. Quote, Doomsday Book is a treasure trove of information for historians and reveals much about 11th century England. Studies of its figures reveal, amongst many other things, such insights as the names of 13,000 villages, that 90% of the population then lived in the countryside, that 75% of the population were serfs, the location of 50 castles, the number of properties destroyed to make way for them, and their association with markets. That many English lords had to buy back their lands from William after the conquest. That William could have assembled an army of around 16,000 fully armed warriors if needed. Unquote. Yes, this information is useful to historians, as the encyclopedia entry says. But think of how valuable this would have been back in the 11th century following the conquest for England's new administrators. The Doomsday Book is a tool with dual purposes. First, it takes account of who is entitled to what across the land, making accurate taxation possible for the new regime. Second, in doing so, it implicitly asserts the dominion of William the Conqueror over England. When combined with a loyal army of enforcers, it gave him the practical means to exercise sovereignty, imperium. And thus, by clearly defining the hierarchies of property ownership across the land, the Doomsday Book influenced the gradual establishment of England's feudal system. If the point of the Doomsday Book was to establish William's dominion, then the lesson of the Doomsday Book is this. True Conquest Imperium requires a record of the property claimed.
The catalog makes the control possible. The book defined what was expected or desired of the people. It set a sort of goal. The king's men then could travel around the kingdom and assess the reality of the situation, comparing that reality to the goal. From there, they could make adjustments to the reality in order to bring it closer to the goal. In today's technological parlance, this process is known as feedback, and it is the governing element within a system. According to our cybernetic theoreticians, this process of feedback can be observed in machines, animals, and even societies. The Doomsday Book, together with William's army, made a sort of primitive political feedback machine. Here on display are the rudiments of social cybernetics. So what happens when we take this rudimentary system and update it for the modern era? What if we push it through the Enlightenment wormhole and carry it into the age of science and technology? With a doomsday book, William conquered England. With an actual doomsday device, could today's conquerors set their sights on the whole world? Find out after this short message. Like never before, our world is changing. Faced with some of our most critical challenges, human ingenuity triumphs. Today, the Microsoft AI for Good initiative enables a person with an idea to accelerate it, to give it scale, to create change for the better. Microsoft AI will help our work by empowering people to take action. Through AI for Earth, photos can now help save a species. With AI for accessibility, the visual world becomes an audible experience. Sanitarium peanut butter. And with AI for humanitarian action, first responders can target their efforts faster than ever before. It feels humbling to know that I'm actually helping another human being. Today, we are empowering others to forge new paths, to fight famine before a crisis strikes, and protect ecosystems by identifying forests down to a single tree. We have the forest that we have today. We can't change that. What we can change is the future. Microsoft AI is fueling some of the most passionate and creative people on our planet with the help of citizen scientists to make change, once thought impossible, real. AI will know and understand and model based on the child interaction. AI unleashes new possibilities to impact our world. And together, we're not just dreaming it. We're doing it. World. There sure are some pretty grandiose proposals in that short presentation there, not least of which is the prospect of using AI to continually monitor the natural world. This is a Microsoft project, by the way. But before I can get into what's actually being offered here, I need to go to the root of this idea and explain the basic tenets of a distinctly modern philosophy for looking at the world and humanity's role in it. So hold the audio you just heard in your mind as I briefly introduce you to that science of sciences known as cybernetics. In 1948, a scientist named Norbert Wiener published a book called Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. 
During the war, Wiener worked with the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development. His particular interest was in developing a self-aiming anti-aircraft gun for the British to use in defense against the onslaught of the German Luftwaffe. Though Wiener's anti-aircraft gun was not to be, he came away from his experience with the OSRD with novel insights into the possibility of automation, insights which he expressed in highly technical terms in his 1948 book. Two years later, he introduced his new science to the general public in a book entitled The Human Use of Human Beings. Throughout the entire course of the book, Wiener drives home the intimate connection between communication and control. The more granular and accurate the communication is between parts of a system, be it organ-to-organ, mechanism-to-mechanism, human-to-human, or human-to-machine, the better the communication, the more precise and effective the control over the whole system will be. He writes, quote, It is the thesis of this book that society can only be understood through a study of the messages and the communication facilities which belong to it, and that in the future, development of these messages and communication facilities, messages between man and machines, between machines and men, and between machine and machine, are destined to play an ever-increasing part. When I give an order to a machine, the situation is not essentially different from that which arises when I give an order to a person. In other words, as far as my consciousness goes, I am aware of the order that has gone out and of the signal of compliance that has come back. To me personally, the fact that the signal in its intermediate stages has gone through a machine rather than through a person is irrelevant and does not in any case greatly change my relation to the signal. Thus, the theory of control in engineering, whether human or animal or mechanical, is a chapter in the theory of messages." Unquote. In his Introduction to Cybernetics, Wiener emphasized the importance of communication between man and his broader environment. Quote, Information is a name for the content of what is exchanged with the outer world as we adjust to it, and make our adjustment felt upon it. The process of receiving and of using information is the process of our adjusting to the contingencies of the outer environment and of our living effectively within that environment. To live effectively is to live with adequate information. Unquote. To put all this in simple terms, Norbert Wiener defined his science of cybernetics as the study of communication and control in the animal and the machine. The purpose of this study, he says, is, quote, to develop a language and techniques that will enable us, indeed, to attack the problem of control and communication in general, but also to find the proper repertory of ideas and techniques to classify their particular manifestations under certain concepts, unquote. Which brings us back to the prospect of monitoring nature with AI. Let's hear a little more on the subject, courtesy, once again, of Microsoft. There are hundreds of millions of acres of forest in the United States. What's happening with them today is the result of centuries of past decision-making. Forests are made up of complex interconnected systems, and there's never been a way to measure all of these systems and you can't manage what you can't measure. Through Microsoft's AI for Good initiative, 
We've created the first high-resolution inventory of all U.S. forests to provide better data and to make better decisions. We've been timbering this land for over 40 years. The watershed provides drinking water to all of the citizens of Duncannon. It is not maintained in a sustainable way. Duncannon came to the Nature Conservancy because they had no forest management plan. Using Sylvia Terra, the borough will know how many trees are per acre, waterways will be mapped and buffered. This will be sustainably managed working forest forever. Working with Microsoft AI has been transformative because it allows us to scale our process globally and to democratize access to this kind of information. We have the forest that we have today. We can't change that. What we can change is the future. Microsoft AI and Sylvia Terra are empowering landowners so they can grow the forests of the future. Every single person has a stake in this. Microsoft announced the launch of its AI for Earth project in 2017, quote, to drive new data insights that will help solve important issues related to water, agriculture, biodiversity, and climate change, unquote. In the clip you just heard, the guy mentioned that Sylvia Terra was pairing with Microsoft in this plan to AI map forests. Sylvia Terra, Latin for forest world or forest land, is now known as NCX. Their website homepage proudly displays their mission. Quote, As the number one provider of high-quality carbon credits, we aim to connect every American landowner to net-zero pioneers. Unquote. And just who does NCX consider to be a pioneer in reducing humanity's carbon output to zero? Well, of course, Microsoft is first on the list, but it's joined by groups such as South Pole, Pledge, and Cargill. Now, Cargill is an interesting one. It is the single largest privately held corporation in America, providing beef, chicken, and eggs to McDonald's, as well as producing many of those syrups and vegetable oils that go into Americans' grocery variety processed foods. But Cargill is also known for its rather cavalier attitude toward the environment, which makes its constant cries of going green and fighting for sustainability ring pretty hollow. But anyway, without getting into Cargill here, I thought it would be interesting to note that in 2010, the African Center for Biosafety busted an $8 million partnership between Cargill and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to take control over African soy production. Quote, The Gates Foundation continues to back agricultural strategies that open new markets for strong corporate interests while assisting in the creation of policy environments to support foreign agribusinesses' interests. The program will yoke African farmers into the soya value chain and open the door for major agribusiness players such as Cargill while displacing African agricultural practices and traditional crops. In addition, there is a very real threat that this project could be a foot in the door for the introduction of genetically modified soya into the continent, unquote. That being from the African Center for Biosafety's statement. Now, through NCX, formerly Sylvia Terra, Cargill is one degree of separation away from Microsoft and its AI for Earth initiative, 
not to farm in Africa, but to essentially catalog the planet to account for all of the Earth's resources. But let's leave Cargill and Gates and Microsoft aside for a moment and think about the raw implications of such a thing. For one, the cataloging of resources is obviously very valuable to whoever owns or has access to the lands being cataloged, just as the cataloging of English property was of tremendous value to William the Conqueror. But going beyond the merely economical, we must seriously consider that this sort of tech could be employed to enforce no-go zones, that is, tracts of land forbidden to the majority of people. I mean, it's not like global leaders haven't been talking about cordoning off gigantic chunks of land since, what, 1992 at least? This program just offers the technical means to actually achieve such an end. As we witness the continued increase in surveillance in urban areas, under the cover of environmentalism, even areas far removed from cities are being fitted for total surveillance. No place to hide. Oh, and just how exactly do you plan on powering all these environment-saving computers the world over? This whole arrangement precariously situates technocratic elites at the top of a contrived pyramid of questionable integrity. Can man truly be the steward of the earth? Can we adequately model nature's secrets? Can we really figure out exactly how many of a given plant or animal ought to be present in a given ecosystem? And do we really need to know when the pandas make whoopee? Is lacing the natural world with computer technology really the solution to what we are told is a human-caused environmental crisis? Seems spurious. Anyway, let's look at some of what this AI for Earth initiative is going to be doing. In the announcement page for the project at Microsoft.com, in the section entitled, Why AI for Earth? We are told of the program's innovative potential. Quote, We also want to encourage others to innovate based on the power and potential of AI. We will partner with others on lighthouse projects that demonstrate how AI can deliver results more rapidly, accurately, and efficiently. Already, we have three projects underway, unquote. The first of these projects is called Land Cover Mapping, and Microsoft gives us a little uh, overview. Quote, Environmental scientists use satellite and aerial imagery to understand patterns of land use, in particular to understand the impacts of climate change and human population expansion on Earth's natural resources. However, distilling imagery into actionable data in the form of land cover maps currently requires extensive manual annotation. This work uses computer vision to accelerate the process, allowing environmental scientists and geospatial analysts to spend less time drawing polygons and more time on conservation planning." Unquote. Welcome to our land cover mapping demo. This web application allows users to perform four high-level operations. First, users can run our land cover models by simply clicking around in a Google Maps-style interface. Our backend server uses a deep learning model to classify each pixel in high-resolution satellite imagery as belonging to some land cover class. 
the land cover predictions are painted on the screen, and users can quickly explore how the model performs in diverse areas using just their browser. With this capability, it becomes obvious where the model is making mistakes. In this case, we can see that the model is misclassifying this boat dock as belonging to the water class. This motivates our second high-level operation, model fine-tuning. The user can correct mistakes like these on the fly by selecting a training class from the panel on the right, then clicking on the map to provide examples for that class. Here, the user is adding training points to indicate that the boat dock should be classified as a built surface instead of water. Clicking the retrain button will fine-tune, then rerun the model in the previously selected area, taking into account these new training points. We can see that the model's behavior has changed and it is now overestimating the built surface class. This can be corrected just as before, as the interface will allow the user to quickly iterate and tune the model's behavior. Here, we will give the user some time to find and correct a few more of the model's mistakes. After just several cycles of providing new training points and fine-tuning, the model's outputs are acceptable despite never having seen this area in training. Our third high-level operation extends this fine-tuning capability to new classes. This area is wetlands and doesn't fit well into any of the land cover classes that the model was trained on. Currently, our model is confused here and is predicting a mixture of field, water, and build surface classes. Users can click the Add New Class button, select a new color, then, just as before, provide examples of this new class. The retraining operation will result in a model that predicts the new class, wetlands in this case, where appropriate. We can see that the new wetlands class does not infringe on our existing classes. Furthermore, we can see that it is recognized even in distant areas. The last high-level operation is the ability to run and download results. Once users are happy with the performance of the model, they can press the download button, which runs their models on a larger area and provides the results as a georeferenced TIFF file and PNG. This data can be directly incorporated into the user's own GIS workflow and power any number of downstream tasks that require land-covered data. To summarize, users can use our web tool to 1. Explore high-resolution land-covered predictions made by our deep learning-based models. 2. Interactively fine-tune these models to new geographic areas. 3. Dynamically extend the models to work with new, user-defined classes. And 4 download the resulting lane cover data in a GIS-friendly format to be used in their own data pipelines. Okay, so the AI classifies various types of land based on ecological conditions and patterns of land use. But it needs a human working with it because it misclassifies the land sometimes. So the human's job is to train the AI to get better and better at identifying, well, everything. AI for Earth's second innovation is a project that deals with smart agriculture called Farm Beats. The Microsoft webpage for this project, titled Farm Beats, AI, Edge, and IoT for Agriculture, reads, quote, Our goal is to enable data-driven farming. We believe that data, coupled with the farmer's knowledge and intuition about his or her farm, can help increase farm productivity and also help reduce costs. However, getting data from the farm is extremely difficult since there is often no power in the field or internet in the farms. 
As part of the FarmBeats project, we are building several unique solutions to solve these problems using low-cost sensors, drones, and vision and machine learning algorithms. Unquote. Let's hear about FarmBeats from Micro Daddy himself, Bill Gates. More than three-quarters of the poor people in the world are farmers. They're faced with a very tough problem. They have to grow enough food to feed their family every year. When you think of digital technology, you don't think of measuring soil moisture. You don't think about helping people know when to plant or understand what's going wrong on their farm. But if we can make these sensors small enough, cheap enough, then the chance to get this down to more and more farmers, get them additional productivity, is pretty exciting. We're taking this data and we built machine learning and AI models to do two things. One is virtual sensor prediction. So we're predicting things like leaf wetness, evapotranspiration, and solar radiation. We use the data to customize the model for the farm, and we are getting very accurate results for each one of those. These sensors use a new type of connectivity that's very inexpensive it's called TV white spaces. TV white space is unused bandwidth in between the TV broadcast channels. Governments are now allowing this bandwidth to be used to transmit data. In this case, it's the data coming from the field that goes back to the computers that helps create the best advice to the farmer. What you're seeing here is a TV White Spaces router. This is like your Wi-Fi antenna at home, powering all of this through solar panels. You just power this on and you get Wi-Fi on demand in the farm. We use it to send drone imagery. Once the flight is complete, it'll start transmitting the data over the white spaces to do precision map generation. Whoa. Oh, come on. Bring it. Yeah, I'm bringing it back. <laughs> Cutting the leaves. Any data you can get to farmers can make a huge difference. The weather is always highly variable. Deciding should they invest in fertilizer, when do they plant, understanding which crop would be the right one at this time. Even 20% more productivity means that they can afford school fees, save a little bit for a tough year. You know, climate change is going to make the farmer's job a lot harder. And just closing that yield gap, even a modest amount, would make a huge difference for all those farmers. AI for Earth's third innovative project is called Microsoft Premonition. Started in 2015, so predating the larger AI for Earth project by two years, Premonition would have smart mosquito traps set up in various ecosystems, in order to, as the project's website says, quote, adaptively lure, identify, and selectively capture targeted mosquito species in the environment, unquote. Why do this? The astute listener may have already guessed. From the webpage, quote, Disease epidemics have impacted every society and economy in human history. The key to reducing future epidemics is the early detection of potential pathogens before they cause large disease outbreaks. This gives researchers time to develop new treatments, public health organizations time to prepare responses, and individuals time to minimize their exposure to sources of disease risk. However, detecting pathogens before they cause outbreaks is no easy task. Pathogens move through the environment in complex ways that are difficult to monitor by traditional methods. It is estimated that 60 to 75 percent of emerging infectious diseases are caused by pathogens that jump from animals to people. Viruses like Zika, 
dengue, and West Nile move between humans, animals, and mosquitoes in complex cycles. Yet today we have limited technologies and capacity to monitor potential pathogens as they move through the environment. The goal of Microsoft Premonition is scalable monitoring of the environment to detect disease threats early using robotics and genomics. Our robotic smart traps continuously monitor the environment for important types of insects, such as mosquitoes, which both transmit pathogens and collect blood samples from other animals. Meanwhile, our cloud-scale genomic analyses try to identify all the species of organisms and viruses in environmental samples to spot new transmission patterns. Unquote. Here we are confronted with the prospect of an entire world united and laid bare via artificial intelligence. We've been promised omniscience, omnipresence, and something approaching omnipotence. So virtual godhood, all thanks to our technological fabrications. As Norbert Wiener explained over 60 years ago, such an increase in communication between nature, machines, and humans will lead to a more controlled system. The question is, who or what exactly is in control? Of course, we're assured again and again that nothing will go wrong, and that those pushing this global technological endeavor have nothing but our best interests in mind. And you might as well believe them, because they're just going to go ahead and do all this anyway, whether you and I like it or not, right? Kind of seems like it. Well, in one of those AI for Earth clips I played, the guy was talking about jacking up some forest, and he said... This will be sustainably managed working forest forever. Forever. If he had my flair for the dramatic, he wouldn't have said forever. He would have said till doomsday. City. So we've got a project that's going to hook up and catalog the world's non-peopled places so people can, I guess, remotely control the environment from a distance. But of course, as I said, this sort of thing can also provide a log of where resources are and how abundant they are. And all those monitored natural resources have got to go somewhere. In the early 1930s, in New York, engineers and intellectuals came together to form Technocracy Incorporated. The group intended to devise a completely new economic model, the purpose of which would be to replace capitalism and usher in a new era of sustainable development. Fundamentally, the technocrats wanted to replace the price-based economy with an energy-based, resource-based economy. In their system, experts, technicians, engineers, academics, technocrats, would scientifically calculate the energy and resource cost of producing and distributing goods and dole them out to the good citizens accordingly. In short, Technocracy Inc. proposed a totally managed economy, a managed society, with scientists and academics at the helm. In their 1934 publication, The Technocracy Study Course, they enumerated a list of requirements for maintaining a balanced load in their utopia. Balanced load basically meaning that production is commensurate to consumption. Quote, number one, 
Register on a continuous 24-hour-per-day basis the total net conversion of energy, which would determine a. the availability of energy for continental plant construction and maintenance, b. the amount of physical wealth available in the form of consumable goods and services for consumption by the total population during the balanced load period, number 2. by means of the registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load, unquote. Technocrats sought to closely monitor and manage the distribution of energy within a society. However, the technical means required to meet such ends would not be available until a commensurate philosophy of technology arose and was employed. The vision of technocracy could not come to pass without cybernetics. So, Though the technological capacity to build a technocratic society didn't exist in the 1930s, it does now. Our current electric grid was conceived more than 100 years ago when electricity needs were simple. Power generation was localized and built around communities. Most homes had only small energy demands, such as a few light bulbs and a radio. The grid was designed for utilities to deliver electricity to consumers' homes and then bill them once a month. This limited one-way interaction makes it difficult for the grid to respond to the ever-changing and rising energy demands of the 21st century. The smart grid introduces a two-way dialogue where electricity and information can be exchanged between the utility and its customers. It's a developing network of communications, controls, computers, automation, and new technologies and tools working together to make the grid more efficient, more reliable, more secure, and greener. This smart grid enables newer technologies to be integrated, such as wind and solar energy production and plug-in electric vehicle charging. With our participation as informed consumers, this smart grid will replace the aging infrastructure of today's grid, and utilities can better communicate with us to help manage our electricity needs. The smart home communicates with the grid and enables consumers to manage their electricity usage. By measuring a home's electricity consumption more frequently through a smart meter, utilities can provide their customer with much better information to manage their electricity bills. Inside the smart home, a home area network, or HAN, connects smart appliances, thermostats, and other electric devices to an energy management system. Smart appliances and devices will adjust their run schedule to reduce electricity demand on the grid at critical times and lower consumers' energy bills. These smart devices can be controlled and scheduled over the web or even a TV. Renewable resources such as wind and solar are a sustainable and growing source for electric power. However, renewable power sources are variable by nature and add complexity to normal grid operations. The smart grid provides the data and automation needed to enable solar panels and wind farms to put energy onto the grid and optimize its use. To keep up with constantly changing energy demands, utilities must turn power plants on and off depending on the amount of power needed at certain times of the day. The cost to deliver power depends on the time of day it is used. Electricity is more costly to deliver at peak times because additional, often less efficient power plants must be run to meet the higher demand. The smart grid will enable utilities to manage and moderate electricity usage with the cooperation of their customers, especially during peak demand times. As a result, utilities will be able to reduce their operating costs. 
By deferring electricity usage away from peak hours and having appliances and devices run at other times, electricity production is more evenly distributed throughout the day. The power being used right now was generated less than a second ago many miles away. At each instance, the amount of electricity generated must equal the consumption across the entire grid. Smart Grid technologies provide detailed information that enables grid operators to see and manage electricity consumption in real time. This greater insight and control reduces outages and lowers the need for peak power. In control rooms across the grid, engineers will be able to more precisely and predictably manage electricity production, reducing the need to fire up costly secondary power plants. The distribution system routes power from the utility to residential and commercial customers through power lines, switches, and transformers. Utilities typically rely on complex power distribution schemes and manual switching to keep power flowing to their customers. Any break in this system caused by storms, bad weather, or sudden changes in electricity demand can lead to outages. The Smart Grid's distribution intelligence counters these energy fluctuations and outages by automatically identifying problems, then rerouting and restoring power delivery. Utilities can further use distribution intelligence to predict and manage electricity usage with the cooperation of their customers, leading to lower production cost. The charging of a plug-in electric vehicle can be managed over a home area network, or HAN. The HAN can balance the demand for electricity across the household and prioritize between the electric vehicle and other appliances to manage electricity usage and reduce costs. With smart grid technologies and consumer participation, utilities can more easily handle the increased demand for power to run the electric vehicles and ensure charging needs are met. By adding more plug-in electric vehicles to the grid, we have the potential to reduce fuel costs, lower our dependency on foreign oil, and help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The Smart Grid has been lauded as the energy system of the future, with its adherents promising to curtail waste and to bolster efficiency. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, known as NIST, describes the Smart Grid as electricity with a brain, the energy internet, and the electronet. But what is it that makes the smart grid smart? To answer this question, we must turn again to cybernetics and to Norbert Wiener. In his quest to develop a self-aiming gun during the Second World War, Wiener stumbled on what he believed to be the secret to intelligence. He called this elemental phenomenon feedback and thought it was so ubiquitous that it applied not only to humans and animals, but to machines as well. Quote, For any machine subject to a varied external environment to act effectively, it is necessary that information concerning the results of its own action must be furnished to it as a part of the information on which it must continue to act. This control of a machine on the basis of its actual performance rather than its expected performance is known as feedback. Unquote. Essentially, feedback occurs when an organism or machine compares the actual results of its actions to the intended or programmed results of its actions, and then modifies its action accordingly. This is the basis of learning. But this communication between actor and acted upon is also the basis of control. Consider the thermostat, 
a very basic feedback device which actually predates Wiener's articulation of the process and his application of it to more complicated machines. Anyway, say I set the thermostat to 70 degrees. It detects that it's only 60 degrees in my house, so it turns the heating system on. When it finally detects that the house is at 70 degrees, it's met its goal and turns off the heat. But then I leave the front door open and I let in a bunch of cold air. The thermostat detects the temperature drop and kicks the heat back on until we get back to 70. Feedback lets the machine know when, how, and whether it should act. It is the regulatory aspect of the machine, of the animal, of the human, and of the society. While my thermostat and its feedback process only applies to my private residence, the smart grid system would have all private appliances hooked into a society-wide network, a network, of course, operating on the cybernetic principle of feedback. Whereas conventional, dumb power systems can only send energy one way, to the consumer, the smart grid will send energy to the consumer and in return receive some information from the consumer. How much energy they use, when they tend to use energy, basically their energy consumption habits in general, and God knows what else. By automatically communicating with commercial and household appliances, a smart power plant can monitor fluctuations in energy demand and increase and decrease the power supply accordingly, all independent of human interference. Of course, the smart grid system is predicated on the power supplier's ability to communicate with the consumer appliance, and this means that both must be connected to the Internet. While just a few short years ago, the idea of a Wi-Fi washing machine would have seemed stupid, today, well, today maybe not so much. These days, all kinds of objects, objects that have nothing to do with the energy grid itself, are being tied into the net. Cars, doorbells, watches, TVs, and more are being endowed with the sort of simulated life that comes with an internet connection. And you can be sure it won't stop there. And, and technology keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and there's going to be sensors everywhere detecting so many things in your life. And these things are going to be able to be used for, for gameplay. So... Um, we're moving on a road towards disposable technology. If anyone here ever bought a Furby, right, the Furby costs like $20, $30. It has more technology in it than they used to put a man on the moon. And many people have now thrown out their Furbies because it's like it's kind of dumb and they throw it out. It's disposable technology. We're, before too long, going to get to the point where every soda can, every cereal box is going to be able to have a CPU, a screen, and a camera on board it and a Wi-Fi connector so that it can be connected to the internet. And what will that world be like? Well, I think it'll be like this. You'll get up in the morning to brush your teeth, and the toothbrush can sense that you're brushing your teeth, and so, hey, good job for you. 10 points for brushing your teeth. And it can measure how long, and you're supposed to brush them for three minutes, and you did. Uh, good job, you brushed your teeth for three minutes. And so you get a bonus for that. And, hey, you brush your teeth every day this week, another bonus. And, right, and who cares? The toothpaste company, the toothbrush company, the more you brush, the more toothpaste you use, they have a vested financial interest. You go to breakfast, there's the cornflakes. On the back, there's a little uh, web game that you can play. While you eat, instead of reading the back, you play a game. 
while you eat your cornflakes. And uh, you, you get that. And you get 10 points just for eating the cornflakes. And then it turns out you can see your list of friends who also have cornflakes and the scores that they got because your Wi-Fi and, and Facebook connected and everything. And so, you know, you get five bonus points because you just beat out uh, one of your friends at the cornflakes game. So then you go and you get on the bus. The bus? Why am I taking the bus? You're taking the bus because the government has started giving out all kinds of bonus points to people who use public transportation. And you can use these points um, for, for tax incentives. And while you're sitting on the bus riding to work and you're playing your little Tetris and getting a few points here and there, you suddenly remember, I had this dream last night. I had a dream that my mother was dancing with this giant Pepsi can. And then you realize, oh yeah, the Remtertainment system. Right, which is the thing you put in your ear and it can sense when you enter REM sleep. And then it starts putting little advertisements out there to try and influence your dreams. <laughs> These sensors that we're going to have on us and all around us and everywhere are going to be tracking and watching what we're doing forever. And our grandchildren will know every book that we read. That legacy will be there. It will be remembered. And you get to thinking about how, wow, is it possible maybe that since all this stuff is being watched and measured and judged, that maybe I should change my behavior a little bit and be a little better than I would have been. And so it could be that these systems are just all crass commercialization and it's terrible, but it's possible that they'll inspire us to be better people if the game systems are designed right. Anyway, I'm not sure about all that, but I do know this stuff is coming. Man, it's got to come. What's going to stop it? And the only question I care about right now is who in this room is going to lead us to get there. Thank you. This interconnected network of objects is appropriately referred to as the Internet of Things, or IoT. While the implementation of the Internet of Things will undoubtedly gamify reality, as was just described in that audio clip, a prospect which I find disturbing as hell, by the way, it'll also allow us to check off some more of those requirements for a technocratic society, as laid out in the Technocracy Study Course from 1934. Quote, Requirement number three, provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. Number four, Provide a specific registration of the type, kind, etc. of all goods and services, where produced and where used. Unquote. Beyond mere inventories and registrations, the IoT promises to overhaul all of the underlying aspects of civilization, ranging from transportation to agriculture to industry. The technological advancements around the world is directly proportional to the growth of global automation, which is driven by the Internet of Things and cyber-physical systems. These systems will provide the foundation of our critical infrastructure, form the basis of emerging and future smart services, and improve the quality of our life in many areas. While Internet of Things takes care of the connections between objects and machines to the Internet, cyber-physical systems are machines in which a mechanism is controlled or monitored by computer-based algorithms. Other phrases that you might hear when discussing Internet of Things and cyber-physical systems are smart anything. Manufacturing, agriculture, cities, buildings, homes, pills, you name it. Connected machines will interact, visualize and make decisions autonomously. One of the data sources that feed the algorithms comes from the smart sensor systems in real applications. 
In the next 10 years, the auto industry will undergo a profound transformation. The cars it builds, the companies that build them, and the consumers who buy them will look significantly different. Once found only in science fiction, fully autonomous cars are being tested on roads today, and the first commercially available autonomous cars could be on the road in the next one to two years. Connected cars, communicating with each other and with the larger world, will not only reduce accidents and ease traffic, they will have powerful effects beyond the auto industry. Insurers, for example, will have new ways to monitor driver behavior, reward good drivers, and distribute costs to the bad ones. And ride-sharing companies can better connect idle cars with the customers that need them. Another company that wants to revolutionize the autonomous driving is AutoX, a self-driving car tech startup backed by Alibaba. According to Zhao, CEO and founder of AutoX, the pandemic has made our society realize that we need self-driving cars for situations like this. Robotaxi, with its self-disinfecting capabilities and driverless logistics, could save lots of lives. On other industry that will be most heavily affected by the rapid technology changes, such as Internet of Things and cyber-physical systems, is the manufacturing industry. Smart machines can work with humans for co-assembly tasks, but they can also operate autonomously and communicate directly with manufacturing systems. Leveraging the capabilities of the Internet of Things, these machines are able to access highly computing resources and carry on work beyond what they are initially programmed to do. By evaluating sensory input and distinguishing between different product configurations, these machines can solve problems and make decisions independently. This will have a strong impact on the factories of the future. For example, advanced manufacturing processes and rapid prototyping will make possible for each customer to order one-of-a-kind product without significant cost increase. Collaborative virtual factory platforms will drastically reduce cost and time associated to new product design and engineering of the production process by exploiting complete simulation and virtual testing throughout the product lifecycle. Advanced human-machine interaction and augmented reality devices will help increasing safety in production plants and reducing physical demand to workers. Machine learning will be fundamental to optimize the production processes, both for reducing lead times and reducing the energy consumption. Cyber-physical systems and machine-to-machine -machine communication will allow to gather and share real-time data from the shop floor in order to reduce idle times by conducting extremely effective predictive maintenance. Agriculture industry is also experiencing a fourth revolution, triggered by the exponentially increasing use of information technology. This industry has seen many revolutions, whether the domestication of animals and plants a few thousand years ago, the systematic use of crop rotations and other improvements in farming practice a few hundred years ago, or the green revolution with systematic breeding and the widespread use of man-made fertilizers and pesticides a few decades ago. As the world's population booms towards 9 billion by 2050, the demand for agricultural products, food, fiber, and fodder will rise dramatically. There are several smart solutions that can be implemented and scaled up in order to improve yields and meet growing food production demands. IoT sensors for light, humidity, temperature, soil moisture, crop health, etc. enable farmers to monitor the field conditions from anywhere. They can also utilize intelligent drones to track the routine activities of crop health and analyze vast amounts of data in seconds.
With the ever-growing amount of data in every industry, the need to safeguard and manage the sensitive data has increased dramatically. Many countries are already implementing strict regulations, a trend that is likely to continue into the foreseeable future. Today, there are privacy concerns with respect to who receives the data and what is done with it. However, in the coming years, we could see an increase of decentralized technology adoption of protocols such as the IOTA Tangle Protocol, which enhances data security, integrity, and privacy for machine-to-machine communication. This, however, deserves a video of its own. If your Internet of Things gets big enough, and if you throw in a smart grid, you wind up with what's called a smart city. An urban area in which services are monitored, reviewed, and ultimately governed by teams of computers, which are constantly communicating and sharing data and applying the process of feedback to guarantee the smooth operation of the city. Microsoft's website describes smart cities as follows, because, of course, Microsoft is involved in this project, too. Quote, A smart city is an urban area that uses an array of digital technologies to enrich residents' lives, improve infrastructure, modernize government services, enhance accessibility, drive sustainability, and accelerate economic development. Governments in many of these smart cities tap into a combination of Internet of Things, IoT, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, AI, augmented reality, AR, edge, blockchain, and other cutting-edge solutions to protect and connect with residents and businesses, improve accessibility for all people in the community, support businesses and fuel economic growth, share information with the public, streamline government operations, deliver user-friendly community services, provide reliable, intelligent infrastructure, drive environmental sustainability, promote cross-agency collaboration, upgrade public transportation, manage city resources to avoid waste, collect and analyze data to get valuable insights. Using the latest digital solutions, governments and smart cities gain a comprehensive view of all city operations, infrastructure, and services. This allows city managers to predict potential issues, quickly overcome challenges, and improve outcomes. It all comes together to elevate experiences for the urban area's residents, visitors, and businesses, and build a brighter future for the city. Unquote. Obviously, automation will play a critical role in the smart city. Not only will advancing technology transform the workforce by replacing menial laborers with highly efficient, compliant robots, something that Norbert Wiener predicted in 1950, we'll also see the proliferation of self-driving cars in smart cities. The production of goods, as well as the transportation of goods and human beings, and who knows, maybe even the production of human beings, will be managed and carried out by a vast network of cybernetic minds, hyper-rational and learning every second. Once these servo-mechanisms are equipped to take care of all the tedious but necessary tasks of civilized life, we humans will at last be free to explore our passions. This is the theory, anyway. And what a theory it is! Everything is promised to be enhanced by Internet of Things adoption and smart city integration quality of life, government efficacy, the economy, safety, freedom from tedium. Oh, 
and of course, environmental sustainability. Doesn't that all sound just fantastic? Well, let me ask a question. Why do people think of totalitarianism as a bad thing? What is it about the prospect of total control over society by an individual or a small group that so disturbs rational minds? Could it be that the more complicated and centralized a system becomes, the more prone it is to failure? Could it be the tremendous possibility of abuse, of inevitable corruption? Or, bear with me on this one, could it be that the rational mind revolts at the thought of any person or people possessing total power because the would-be ruler's claims of benevolence and competence are obvious bullshit. That's why I think totalitarianism is bad. Yeah, the other two things I said about being prone to failure and being ripe for abuse is true. But the last thing, that's why. Well... Whatever your personal favorite argument against totalitarianism may be, I recommend that you apply it to these prospects of smart cities and smart grids and the Internet of Things if you haven't already. Because this is as total as it gets. I mean, think of what's being sold here. A completely regimented, regulated, managed, centralized society in which inanimate objects are constantly watching people and talking to each other. And I know, I know, there's going to be a critic out there saying, uh, actually, the IoT and all that stuff uh, isn't really a centralized system, it's a decentralized system. Yeah, yeah, I know they say that. And I also know that there are, in fact, actual ways to use the Internet in a decentralized fashion. Yes. But to reiterate, we're talking about smart grids and smart cities and the Internet of Things. Comprehensive networks. Sure, it's got many bodies spread all over the place, but it's still one thing. It's not decentralized. It's nothing but one big center. One mind in many bodies, like a beehive, an ethereal monolith. The watch listens to your heart. The watch talks to the phone. The phone talks to the house. The house watches you. The house talks to the power company. Each line of communication is tied to every other, forming a net around us all, a conscious net, each knot conspiring to collect as much information about each of us as technologically possible in order to increase control. Communication and control. Don't you see? Cybernetics is... The Doomsday Device In The Human Use of Human Beings, Norbert Wiener explained that the rapid advancement of communicative technology, that means technology which facilitates not only communications between human beings, but communications between humans and machines and machines and machines, he explained that the advancement of this technology has ushered in an age of political gigantism. Quote, we have thus established the basis in man for the simplest element of his communication, namely the communication of man with man by the immediate use of language when two men are face to face with one another. The inventions of the telephone, the telegraph, 
and other similar means of communication have shown that this capacity is not intrinsically restricted to the immediate presence of the individual, for we have many means to carry this tool of communication to the ends of the earth. Among primitive groups, the size of community for an effective communal life is restricted by the difficulty of transmitting language. For many millennia, this difficulty was enough to reduce the optimum size of the state to something of the order of a few million people, and generally fewer. It will be noted that the great empires which transcended this limited size were held together by improved means of communication. The heart of the Persian Empire was the royal road and the relay of messengers who conveyed the royal word along it. The great empire of Rome was possible only because of Rome's progress in road-building. These roads served to carry not only the legions, but the written authority of the emperor as well. With the airplane and the radio, the word of rulers extends to the ends of the earth, and very many of the factors which previously precluded a world state have been abrogated. It is even possible to maintain that modern communication, which forces us to adjudicate the international claims of different broadcasting systems and different airplane nets, has made the world state inevitable. Unquote. Our technology has set us on the road to global government. As our cities become more and more cybernetically integrated internally, so too will the metropolitan centers of the world become integrated with one another externally. If we follow this global cybernetic model out to its logical extent, we wind up with a world in which everything that can be known about every individual is known by an artificial mind, to be catalogued and cross-checked to a degree which even William the Conqueror himself may have derided as satanic. Yet this is the fifth requirement of a technocratic society, as defined by Technocracy Inc. in 1934. Quote, Provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual, plus a record and description of the individual. Unquote. Taken to its logical extreme, the cybernetic or technocratic society is one run by automated servo mechanisms, doling out rationed energy and resources to totally dependent individuals with no recourse to sympathy nor meritocracy. Freedom is a narrow space whose bounds are unforgivingly set and enforced mathematically. Requirement number six, quote, Allow the citizen the widest latitude of choice in consuming his individual share of continental physical wealth. Unquote. In Techtopia, everyone is fed. Requirement number seven. Quote, Distribute goods and services to every member of the population. Unquote. But nobody knows how the sausage is made. The word cybernetics comes from the ancient Greek, kybernetis. It meant steersman, as in, of a ship. It was used as a metaphor by the great philosopher Plato to represent the right sort of governor, the proper pilot of the ship of state. In Rome, the word became gubernator, the ancestor of our word governor. In the early 19th century, André-Marie Ampère, namesake of electrical amperage, used cybernetique to describe the science of government. 
Thus, knowing all of this history, Norbert Wiener chose cybernetics to be the name of his new science, which would study communication and control in animals, machines, and societies. In The Republic, Plato describes a hyper-regulated state. However, his point in doing so is not to advocate for some ultimate revolution, but rather to use his state as a metaphor for the well-regulated, just man. The purpose of Plato's cybernetics was to remodel the individual. Norbert Wiener knew that his cybernetics would fundamentally alter society. Perhaps it would lead to an ultimate revolution. But like Plato, he knew that his cybernetic model would also totally remake the individual. Man Quote, We have modified our environment so radically that we must now modify ourselves in order to exist in this new environment. We can no longer live in the old one. Unquote. Norbert Wiener the Human Use of Human Beings. In 1960, Maxwell Maltz, a famous plastic surgeon, published Psycho-Cybernetics, in which he applied the mechanistic principles of feedback to human psychology. There is no subconscious mind, Maltz argued. Rather, the human brain operates like any other cybernetic goal-seeking device. Author Thomas Ridd, in his Rise of the Machines, succinctly sums up Maltz's position as follows. Quote, Freud and Jung were wrong. Missile engineers were right. Unquote. Since the 1940s, cyberneticians had remarked on the similarities between, and often alluded to the interchangeability of, organisms and machines which operate on the cybernetic principle of feedback. The most fundamental similarity between the two is the fact that they both struggle against entropy, the natural propensity for systems to break down. In fact, in The Human Use of Human Beings, Wiener even remarks that life itself may understandably be defined as, quote, all phenomena which locally swim upstream against the current of increasing entropy, unquote. Wiener explains that if we accept this definition of life, and consider that feedback in a machine also serves to oppose entropy, quote, the problem as to whether or not the machine is alive or not is, for our purposes, semantic, and we are at liberty to answer it one way or the other as best suits our convenience. By its ability to make decisions, a machine, like a living organism, can produce around it a local zone of organization in a world whose general tendency is to run down, unquote. For Wiener, as for those who followed him, the science of cybernetics was and is largely about blurring the line between the animal, particularly the human animal, and the machine. Maxwell Maltz's Psycho-Cybernetics simply packaged and sold this new philosophy to an eager public, still enamored with the scientific and technical achievements that came out of World War II. But Maltz's book is just the very tip of the iceberg of influence cybernetics would have on man's view of himself. Even in the earliest days of cybernetics, back in the early 1950s, Practitioners of the new science, like William Ross Ashby, were arguing that, really, the human body is a machine, 
just as external to the brain as a screwdriver or an IBM supercomputer. This sort of thinking, when carried to its logical end, could obviously lead to extreme mind-body dualism. If the body is merely a tool of the mind, the relationship between the two becomes strictly utilitarian. When we look at the body as a tool, we look at it as something that we can improve upon, something to upgrade. And I don't mean upgrade as in diet right and get in better shape. I mean mechanically upgrade. Of course, the first group to consider the benefits of such an approach was the military, who began to work on a number of systems that would make machines into extensions of the human body which obey the commands of the human brain, all so the man could become a more effective killer. But, naturally, as happened with cybernetic theory itself, the idea that humankind could mechanically improve itself seeped out of the military and into other areas of consideration. The gray pragmatism of the military approach eventually gave way to a far more idealistic, utopian interpretation of cybernetics. The word transhumanism was first popularized by none other than the evolutionary biologist Sir Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous, grandson of Thomas Henry, president of the British Eugenics Society, and founder of UNESCO. Transhumanism refers to the belief that human beings ought to fit themselves with cybernetic devices which will improve physical and mental capacity. We must merge with machines, they say, in order to drastically speed up and take control of our own evolution. The human race will willfully improve itself via technological intervention until ultimately it reaches a point of perfection. This in turn will parallel the improvements upon society which technology will deliver, improvements like AI for Earth and smart cities, it can be inferred. Nature, city, and man. Technology will perfect them all. This is the ultimate utopian scheme. Every utopian project has to have some plan for perfecting the human race. It's just baked into the cake. How can you keep up a perfect society if everyone running around's a bunch of knuckleheads? So, you know, the Christians, they've got heaven, but they don't let the riffraff in. And here on Earth, the communists, they were going to do away with inequality to bring out the best in people. And the Nazis were going to, like, force evolve into Dolph Lundgren, and so on and so forth. Well, none of that stuff worked, but we've got, a plan. We've got another plan this time, and this time it will work. We're going to use computers to do away with inequality and to force evolve ourselves, but not into Dolph Lundgren, but into God. Well, pretty close to God anyway. How is God described in these different traditions? There's actually a common set of attributes that God has in all of these different religious traditions. God is uh, infinitely uh, creative and beautiful and loving, uh, intelligent. Um, so what, is it, what happens to entities as they evolve? First through biological evolution, and I've said that technological evolution is just a continuation of biological evolution. It actually is a very smooth transition in terms of the acceleration of paradigm shift rates. Uh, well, they become more intelligent, clearly. I mean, humans, and now humans enhanced with technology, which we already are, are more intelligent than 
uh, worms, which are more intelligent than single-celled animals. So as uh, we evolved, we became more intelligent. We became more capable of higher-level emotions, so we became more loving. We became more creative. We became more beautiful. And so we're actually moving exponentially to have greater uh, levels of the very properties we ascribe to God without limit. Now, we never become literally infinite, but we're moving exponentially in that direction, so we become more godlike, uh, and we become closer to God, and, uh, and we do so at an exponential rate, and exponentials kind of explode, never quite becoming infinite, so we never really reach that ideal, but you can definitely say that evolution is a spiritual process that moves us closer to God. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my view of spirituality. That was Ray Kurzweil, perhaps the best-known transhumanist of our time. Kurzweil was famously asked in an interview, Do you believe in God? To which he replied, Not yet. Spooky! Yet, Kurzweil is by no means the first transhumanist, nor has he been the most radical. The real cybernetic transhumanists believe in the complete apotheosis of humankind, the annihilation of all boundaries barring humanity access to its destiny as the infinite itself. This exceedingly idealistic view of technology could have come only from the adoption of cybernetic theory by the psychedelic counterculture of the 1960s and 70s. And that's exactly how it went down. Despite its technicalities and its military origins, cybernetics became a countercultural sensation. The major philosophical contribution to arise out of countercultural cybernetics, and perhaps the amendment that was required for cybernetics to gel with countercultural ideology, came in the 1970s from Gregory Bateson a former Office of Strategic Services intelligence agent and hippie-adjacent anthropologist. Bateson had been particularly influenced by William Ross Ashby, the cyberneticist who said the body is another tool of the brain. Early cyberneticists like Ashby and Wiener had made this point to say that if the human brain could form such an intimate, symbiotic connection with a tool, the body, could it not also form such intimate connections with other tools, like spatulas and gun turrets? Still, in this formulation, the brain was the superior element in the system. It was in charge. For Bateson, this was fundamentally wrong. If cybernetic theory were applied consistently, it would follow that, due to feedback, the brain is influenced in its actions by its tools and its environment. Mind, Bateson wrote, quote, is imminent in the larger system, man plus environment, unquote. Individual will, then, is something of an illusion, because the brain is being influenced just as much as it's influencing. The supposed actor is being acted upon by the acted upon. So, whatever the mind is, it permeates the entire system, not just part of it. Bateson's was a holistic cybernetics, formulated just in time to provide some scientific cover for the hippie mysticism of the late-mid-20th century.
Bateson's profound observation only served to maintain the first-generation cybernetics position that there really is no special connection between the body and the mind. Sure, the reasoning was different. Before, it had been that the mind is isolated from all tools, body included. Now, mind emerges out of the totality of the system. Mind is just as much in the ball as it is in the hand that threw it, as it is in the brain which seemingly decided to throw it. Either way, the old mind-body-soul-all-being-inextricable parts of the human being? Yeah, that thing was kind of out the window. To live in accordance with his newly discovered truth, Bateson would take LSD, attempting to break down the perceived distinctions between himself and his environment. Identity is unseated, imaginary, arbitrary, fluid. Upsetting traditional ideas of identity, the glorification of ego death, the destruction of all boundaries, and the pursuit of cybernetic oneness became and remain core tenets of certain circles of post-60s American counterculture, Of course, the ultimate boundary to be broken is that which subjects the individual to the demands of the external world. By the late 80s and early 90s, augmented reality, AR, and virtual reality, VR, technology, which were already being worked on by the military for some time by then, really sank their claws into the counterculture, which took them to be the key to ultimate freedom. Of course, these days, conversations surrounding AR and VR is often centered around entertainment. But for those residing in the framework of cybernetic thought and pining after a futuristic technological utopia, the notion that human beings could create and act inside of new realities is far more profound than merely fun. In 1988, Timothy Leary, the old high priest of LSD emerged from the settling dust cloud of the freewheeling 1960s as a prophet of the imminent age of cyberdelia. In Rise of the Machines, Thomas Ridd reports, quote, The hipster magazine Reality Hackers was all about psychedelics, mind machines, and artificial reality technology. If that link to mind expansion wasn't clear enough, then the person reporting about the new technology left no room for doubt. The infamous Timothy Leary, illustrated with a psychedelic image of a man sitting at a personal computer with the machine as the access portal to a trippy spiritual world, a Buddha looking down on the cybernaut, as Leary referred to the user. The technology was brand new and had never been covered in any magazine or newspaper before. Leary introduced the readers of Reality Hackers to helmet-mounted liquid crystal displays, head tracking, three-dimensional sound equipment, speech and gesture input, and visual programming language research company's prototype VR glove. Humankind, the psychedelic guru pointed out, had already entered a post-industrial cyber era. The real world was losing relevance, the magazine reported. Unquote. Later, in 1994, in a book called Chaos and Cyberculture, Leary declared that, quote, the best model for understanding and operating the mind came from the mix of the psychedelic and cybernetic cultures, unquote. He went on to say, quote, cybernetics are the stuff of which the world is made. 
Matter is simply frozen information. Unquote. We were entering into an era in which that frozen information could be thawed. The data that makes up the world could be technologically decoded, stored, reinterpreted, and shared. Cybernetics was fundamentally transforming humanity, biologically and sociologically. To these people, cybernetics was the force, and its gifts to the good were those technologies which would soon dissolve all biological boundaries, such as those between men and women, organism and object, and life and death. At last, we could tear the identity from the organic object and free the mind to identify as anything it chooses. Jaron Lanier, founder of Visual Programming Language Research Company, which developed a virtual reality glove in the early 80s, described the possibilities of virtual embodiment as endless. One could be a comet shrieking across the sky, or one could be a planet-sized spider. I've considered being a piano, Lanier once mused. In 1990, transgender artist and media theorist Sandy Stone considered to be the founder of transgender studies, proclaimed that becoming a cyborg and sliding into cyberspace, which one should do, is an inherently feminine act. Identity and distinction are no more in cyberspace. It is, she said, a, quote, multi-gendered, hallucinatory space, unquote. While for most people at the end of the 20th century, computers were still just clunky beasts of burden, and VR was still relegated to the realms of science fiction, countercultural cyberneticists and transhumanists wailed on with religious ecstasy of the glorious apocalypse which would soon be upon us. In 1991, a year after Sandy Stone's description of boundaryless cyberspace, VR pioneer Nicole Stenger gave a presentation called The Mind is a Leaking Rainbow, overwhelmingly religious in its imagery, in which she lauded the coming new age, an age in which humans have freed themselves from harsh boundaries and bask in the eternity that is cyberspace. Quote, We will all become angels, and for eternity, highly unstable, hermaphrodite angels, unforgettable in terms of computer memory. In this cubic fortress of pixels that is cyberspace, we will be, as in dreams, everything the dragon, the princess, and the sword. In this primeval garden where a synthetic sun will rise, inner voices will whisper, immaterial kisses hover in the air, you will lie in the reconstructed sense of fur. For blind bards as for nearsighted whiz kids, cyberspace will feel like paradise. Unquote. To the cyberdelic tectopians, cyberspace is heaven. It will free us from the material prison of our bodies and let us loose to play in the realm of pure spirits. There will be no boundaries, no walls, no rigidity. All will be fluid, constantly transforming. It will be a realm of joy and entertainment, not of labor. Cyberspace will forever destroy our experience of mundanity. As for what happens to your actual body, I don't really know, but... I'm guessing either compost or battery. Psychedelic icon Terence McKenna said in 1984, quote, I think every time you take a psychedelic drug, you're anticipating and experiencing this future state of electronic and pharmacological connectedness, 
unquote. In tandem with psychedelic drugs, McKenna credited this emerging state of connectedness to the, quote, advent of more advanced cybernetic systems, unquote. McKenna was an interesting cat. He basically thought that humans would unite globally by way of psychedelic drugs and cybernetic technology to become a high-tech planetary tribe, a situation he called an archaic revival and, I believe, electric shamanism. Then we would ultimately progress to a point where history ends, time folds in on itself, we transcend three-dimensional life as we know it, and experience all of reality simultaneously. From the time that there is an awareness of the existence of the soul, we'll say circa 50,000 BP, until the resolution of the apocalyptic potential there's something like 50,000 years, which in biological time is only a moment, but it is the entire span of history times five. In that period, everything hangs in the balance because it is a mad rush from monkeydom to starshiphood. And in the leap across those 25,000 years, Energies are released, religions are shot off like sparks, philosophies evolve and die, science arises, magic arises, all of these things which control power with greater and lesser degrees of ethical constancy appear. There is the possibility, as in the metaphor of dying, there is the possibility of mucking it up, of aborting the species transformation into a hyperspatial intellect. We are now, there can be no doubt that we are now in the final seconds of that crisis, a crisis which involves the end of history, the departure from the planet, the triumph over death, and the release of the individual from matter. We are, in fact, closing distance with the most profound event a planetary ecology can encounter, which is the freeing of life from the dark chrysalis of matter, the old metaphor of psyche as the butterfly is a species-wide metaphor. We must undergo a metamorphosis in order to survive the momentum of the historical forces already in motion. Well, if you know anything about evolutionary biology, you know that man is considered to be an, an unevolving species. In other words, sometime in the last 100,000 years, with the invention of culture, the, uh, the biological evolution of man ceased, and evolution became a cultural phenomenon. Tools, languages, and philosophies began to evolve, but the human somatype began to remain the same. And so we are very much like people a long time ago. But technology is the real skin of our species. Man, correctly seen in the context of the last 500 years, is an extruder of a technological shell. We take in matter that has a low degree of organization. We put it through mental filters and we extrude Lindisfarne Gospels, space shuttles, all of these things. This is what we do. We're like coral animals embedded in a technological reef of extruded psychic objects. In other words, the body 
must become an interiorized hologrammatic object embedded in a solid-state hyperdimensional matrix which is eternal so that man wanders through Elysium in his body experiencing all the pleasures of the flesh but not realizing that he is a holographic projection of a solid-state matrix that is micro-miniaturized, superconducting, and nowhere to be found. It is part of the plenum. And uh, we, all history is about producing prototypes of this situation with greater and greater closure toward the ideal so that airplanes, automobiles, condominiums, space shuttles, space colonies, uh, starships of the hardware, speed of light, spin-dizzy drive type, all of these are, as Merciliad says, self-transforming images of flight that speak volumes about man's aspiration to self-transcendence so that we are, our wish, our salvation, and our only hope, basically, is to end the historical crisis by becoming uh, the alien, by ending alienation, by recognizing the alien as the self, in fact. And all these other images, the starship, the space colony, all that, these are precursors. Again, the idea that history is the shockwave of eschatology. As you close distance with the eschatological object, the reflections it is throwing off become more and more true to the thing itself. And in the final moment, God stands revealed. There are no more reflections of, uh, of the mystery. The mystery in all its nakedness then is seen, and nothing else exists. In the 80s and 90s, transhumanist, techtopian visionaries tended to be pretty fringe individuals. Some of the biggest ones, like Terence McKenna and Tim Leary, came out of the earlier hippie milieu and immediately recognized how new technology might map onto and affirm their old ideology from back in the day. But psychedelia hadn't even made it into the mainstream yet, let alone cyberdelia. And obviously, the sort of talk you just heard from McKenna and Stanger and Stone and Leary certainly wouldn't have flown at the average American dinner table. But now, in the beginning of the third decade of the 21st century, following the incredible advances in technology that have occurred over the past 30, 40 years, not least of which being the mass proliferation of the internet and pocket-sized supercomputers, the notion of cybernetically transforming the human being has not only gone mainstream, it's happening. Uh, what I'm excited to show you, um, I'll quote like, the, the Three Little Pigs demo, um, and uh, if our... Uh, I don't have this, we're bringing, we're bringing out the, the pigs, and what we're going to show you is a... Well, I'll walk right over and show you. Okay, this is a, a high-energy pig. Um, all right, Gertrude, thanks for coming out. Um, so what you're, the, the beeps you're hearing are real-time signals from the neural link in Gertrude's head. So this neural link 
connects to neurons that are uh, in her snout. So whenever she snuffles around and touches something with her snout, the, that sends out uh, neural spikes, which are detected here. Um, and so on the screen, um, you can see uh, each, each of the, the spikes from the 1,024 electrodes. And, and then if, you, if, she, yeah, if she snuffles around, touches her snout on the ground, or you kind of feed her some food, pigs love food, um, then uh, you, you can see the neurons um, will fire much more than when you're not touching the snout. And uh, that's what's making the, the beeping sound. All right, cool. So as you can see, uh, we have a healthy and happy pig, um, initially shy, but obviously high energy and, and uh, you know, kind of loving life. And uh, she's had the implant for two months. So this is a healthy and happy pig with an implant that is two, month old, two months old and working well. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Um, and we uh, take the, the readings from the neurons, and we try to predict the posi position of the joints. Um, and so we, say we have the predicted position of the joints, and then we, we measure the actual position of the joints. You can see that they're almost exactly aligned. So we're able, with um, a wireless neural, imp neural implant, to actually predict the position of, of all of the limbs uh, in the pig's body uh, with, with very high accuracy. Now, in terms of, of writing to the brain or stim stimulating neurons, uh, we also need pr precise control of the electric field in, in space and time. We need a wide range of current for different brain regions. Uh, some, some regions require delicate stimulation. Some require a lot of current. Uh, and, and you want, obviously, no harm to the brain over time. Uh, another question from Twitter. Will you be able to save and replay memories in the future? Uh, yes, I think uh, in the future you'll be able to save and re replay memories. Um, I mean, this is obviously sounding increasingly like a Black Mirror episode. Um, but, uh, well, I guess it's pretty good at predicting. Um, but yeah, essentially, if, if you have a whole brain interface, everything that's encoded in memory, you could, uh, you could upload. You could basically store your memories um, as a backup and restore the memories. Um, and ultimately, you could potentially download them into a new body or into a robot body. The future is going to be weird. <laughs> well, I mean, you could argue that any group of people, like like a, a company, is essentially a, a cybernetic collective of people and machines. That's what a company is. And then there are different. There's different levels of complexity in the way these companies are formed. And then there are sort of, there's this sort of like a collective AI in, in the Google sort of search, Google search, you know, the, where we're all sort of plugged in as like, like nodes on the network, like leaves on a big tree. All, and we're all, we're all feeding this network without questions and answers. We're all collectively programming the AI, and the, the and Google plus the, all the humans that connect to it are one giant cybernetic collective. This is also true of Facebook, and Twitter, and Instagram, and all these social networks.
the Giant Cybernetic Collectives. From a long-term existential standpoint, that's like the purpose of Neuralink, is to create a high bandwidth interface to the brain such that we can be symbiotic with AI. Because we have a bandwidth problem. You just can't communicate through your fingers. It's too slow. It would be difficult to to really appreciate the, dif- the difference. Um, you know, it's kind of like how much smarter are you with a phone or computer than without? It's you're vastly smarter, actually. You know, you can answer any question if you if you connect to the internet. You can answer any question pretty much instantly. Any calculation uh, that your phone's memory is essentially perfect. Uh, you can remember flawlessly. Your phone can remember videos pictures and everything perfectly uh, that's the that your phone is already an extension of you you're already a cyborg you don't even well most people don't realize they are already a cyborg it that phone is an extension of yourself it's just that the the data rate the rate at which or the communication rate between you and the cybernetic extension of yourself that is your phone and computer is slow. It's very slow. And and that that it's like a tiny straw of, of of information flow between your biological self and your digital self. And we need to make that tiny straw like a giant river, huge high bandwidth interface. It's an interface problem, data rate problem. Solve the data rate problem, then I think I think we can hang on to human machine symbiosis through the long term. I've been thinking ever since I was born that I don't belong in this body. Oh my god. It's alright. It's really okay, darling. I've been reading up on it. And I think I'm trans. No, I'm not transsexual. Oh. Is that not the word now? But you said trans. What did we call you then? I'm not transsexual. I'm transhuman. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. They keep changing the words. I don't know the difference. I don't want to change sex. No. Sure. We say gender now, don't we? I said I'm not comfortable with my body, so I want to get rid of it. This thing, all the arms and legs and every single bit of it, I don't want to be flesh. I'm really sorry, but I'm going to escape this thing and become digital. What do you mean? They say one day soon they'll have clinics in Switzerland where you can go and you'll sign a form and they'll take your brain and download it into the cloud. And your body? Recycled. Into the earth. So you want to kill yourself? I want to live forever. As information, because that's what transhumans are, Mum. Not male or female. Better. Where I'm going, there's no life or death. There's only data. I will be data. The individual is being transformed. If Elon is to be believed, 
We're not far away from a time when one can peer into the brain of another. Not metaphorically, like when you look at someone's art and see into their soul. This is literally looking into one's brain, seeing how their neurons are firing, decoding memories, thoughts. Think of what that means. Think of how ripe for abuse something like the Neuralink is. I say abuse, assuming, of course, that the most intimate tyranny in the history of humanity is not the actual intent behind this project. They assure us over and over again that the implantable brain chip is for helping the disabled and the ill. Oh, and it'll put facts from the internet in your brain, which Elon confuses with actually making you smarter, but, but whatever. The point is that it's, it's good. Just like the earlier advocates of cyberdelia and electric oneness take for granted, if, if they're acting in good faith, they take for granted that prioritizing your virtual fluid identity over your organic presence in the world is a good thing. But that's assuming a lot. It's assuming that there aren't big corporate and political interests behind the scenes leveraging this technology to suit their interests. It's assuming that it's not stupid. It's assuming that we're not maybe playing a little too close to the road here. It's assuming that it's not a goddamn plot. It's assuming that people will exercise moderation in their use of all this new technology, as if people aren't already known for treating new technology like a frat boy treats a keg. I mean, damn! Maybe Elon and McKenna are right. Maybe they're right. Boy, do a lot of people seem to be real easy to sell on technology so disruptive it may threaten to obliterate individualism as we know it. Play hard to get once in a while, for Christ's sake. Don't make it so easy on them. We're insatiable. So insatiable that our epileptic frenzy of invention over the past hundred years has gotten us to a point where we may actually destroy the privacy of one's own mind and therefore destroy the individual as such. And sure, we get movies from time to time that show the sort of dystopia this could lead to, but that never seems to actually stop anyone or to get people concerned enough that they demand this whole thing comes to a halt. It just barrels forward. <sighs> Today, advanced cybernetic technology is posed to blanket and bind the natural world, to automate and regiment the societal world, and to augment and collectivize the inner world. Total cybernetic integration, up and down all levels of scale, world, city, and man, stripped of organic boundaries and remade into a new carbon-silico-god organism. It's a hell of a dream, but you've got to be in the Matrix to believe it. Conclusion this episode was pretty difficult to put together. I mean, for one thing, there are just so many things I could have talked about in the history of cybernetics and technocracy and transhumanism that I just had to leave out. For example, I barely mentioned the role the military played in all this, and the military's role is huge. During the Vietnam War, the military developed cybernetic bipedal and quadrupedal tanks. Metal Gear. For Christ's sake. I didn't talk about how the internet was developed by the predecessor of DARPA. 
I didn't talk about the U.S. government's proposed Total Information Awareness Program, which was designed to, quote, detect, classify, ID, track, understand, and preempt, unquote, any and all potential terrorist activity via surveillance, biometrics, and comprehensive data synthesis, nor did I mention that the seal of this program literally depicted a pyramid topped with an all-seeing eye which emitted a beam of light aimed at planet Earth. I didn't get into the rise of the surveillance state more generally, nor did I talk about the prospects of social credit systems. I barely went into automation and self-driving cars. I didn't talk about the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which would practically turn every company into a tech company. And I didn't talk about the Great Reset. Oh, and I didn't talk about the goddamn metaverse. The list goes on and on and on. And every single thing on it is well worth diving into in detail. The point is... Whether we're talking about the ideology, philosophy, or history of this strange thing which I just cover with the umbrella term cybernetics, this episode barely scratched the surface, and it's already I don't even know how long. So, of course, I'll be getting into this cybernetic tech stuff more and more and again and again in the future. I'm not going to make any promises as to when I'll revisit the subject, but... Really, there's just no way I could leave it alone. There's so much here. It's so crucial to talk about now, and I really see this sort of, well, I call it techtopian vision as the predominant utopian vision of our time. I'd be derelict in my duty not to cover it in even more depth. Luckily for me, I'm incredibly fascinated by it all, even if it does cause me great stress. Another reason this was a tough episode for me is that I personally just have so much to say on the subject of technology, generally speaking. And maybe my thoughts on it aren't really worth all that much, but it's just such a gigantic topic that, I mean, I could go on and on and on about it. Lately, I've been talking with people about it, and these conversations are just endless. There's so much to dig into, and I don't just mean the history stuff, but more importantly the philosophy and ideology underlying it all. It's massive. And of course, whenever you even suggest some skepticism about it, you've always got to immediately disclaim everything you're saying. No, I'm not anti-technology. Yes, I understand that technology improves life for a lot of people. Yes, I'm aware that I use computers and the internet. And yes, I think it would be nice to give sight to the blind and legs to the cripples. So you've got to spend the whole conversation just clarifying yourself and unstrawmanning your points that the more fundamental discussion about our philosophy of technology is often obscured completely. It can be rough. But don't get me wrong, that's that's okay. It's supposed to be rough. It's a difficult subject, and there's no reason that talking about it should be easy. I'm just saying that I needed to restrict how I went about digging into it here in order to actually produce a somewhat coherent podcast, and even then, I may not have succeeded. And besides, it's not like I even have a solid position on this stuff. I'm not indifferent. I just don't know. I waffle. Right now, I'm at a point where I'm generally more perceptive of the potential dangers of mass cybernetics. I did call it the doomsday device, after all. But there have been times in the past where I've been more receptive to the potential benefits of rapid technological development. And certainly during the making of this show, I felt that push and pull within myself almost constantly. But in the end, 
I think we really need to talk about the potential pitfalls of all this. Sure, the computer and the internet are wonderful tools, but I chose the doomsday device route for this show to dimly bring to light the potential that cybernetic technology has to reduce the human race to a totally regimented element within the largest, most comprehensive, literally totalitarian, artificial system imaginable. It's very tempting and very easy to imagine how great technology could make everything, even though if you actually audit your own personal use of technology, the beneficial aspects might not be so clear. Here I just wanted to point out the other side of the thing, that the integration of natural world, social world, and inner world with cybernetic technology could do in a truly complete way what William the Conqueror could only manage to do in a completely barbaric way. The bagging and tagging of everything. That's what this is about. Maybe you think it's a good thing. Maybe you think it's a bad thing. Doesn't matter. That's what it is. And as I said at the top of the show, the catalog gets you control. As Norbert Wiener said, communication gets you control. Well, cybernetics gives the catalog the capacity to communicate. If the various cybernetic systems being constructed are everything their purveyors say they are, then we may well be doomed. And once put in place, this grand multifaceted system may well last till doomsday. But I'm not so pessimistic as all that. If there's one thing you find in studying the history of technology, especially advanced cybernetic technology, it's that the people peddling this stuff and dreaming up all kinds of wonderful uses for this stuff are often very, very wrong. Shocker, turns out that people obsessed with playing God have a tendency to drastically overestimate their own abilities, as well as the abilities of their precious creations. The more complicated a system is, the more opportunities there are for something to go wrong with it, and these cybernetic systems I described in this episode are humongous. Now that could lead to problems of its own, people entrusting themselves to a system they've been sold on as being very stable, and then it turns out to be very unstable. That's an issue in itself. We could see how that sort of thing goes already if you just kind of look around. But all this is to say that carbon hasn't quite lost to silicon yet. However, as I've shown here, there are very real plans to build up what I keep calling a real, genuine totalitarian system. I keep using that word totalitarian because I want it to sink in. This cybernetic totalitarian movement has been building and progressing for a while now, and I don't think it'd be proper to just assume that none of the tech will work, and that all the proselytizers will then just slink away. Remember that utopian schemes never work like they're supposed to, but very often, very terrible things wind up happening to very large numbers of people. So that's why I'm talking about this stuff. That's why I'm introducing some of the history, and some of the players, and some of the ideas— so we can actually understand what the predominant utopian delusion of our day is and guard ourselves against it. Like all totalitarian models before it, the highly integrated, transhuman, cybernetic techtopia requires our dependence on it. 
so starve it. Strive for independence from vast, complex, automated systems. In this episode, I've focused on the complex automated systems being designed and theorized. I haven't criticized computers themselves or the internet itself, but I've criticized a way of using them, and therefore I criticize not the tools themselves, but the operators. And yet, I did call cybernetics the doomsday device, didn't I? Now, is that fair? I think that it is, but... Now that I've introduced you to some Tectopian theory, I should elaborate a bit. Am I suggesting that cybernetics is evil? At the core of cybernetics is feedback. The concept of feedback merely describes the very basic and very real process of adaptation. The degree to which the concept of feedback accurately represents this process is the degree to which the concept conforms to reality. In other words, it's the degree to which feedback is true. There's nothing intrinsically evil about feedback. It's just a very, very, very fundamental process. So basic that it appears to apply to humans and animals and to machines. It is the process which actually controls or governs behavior. That's pretty basic. Not evil. Just an observation. Cybernetics takes that process and puts it to work. And if we're accepting the premise that feedback is a true process, then the degree to which cybernetics conforms to the process of feedback is the degree to which cybernetics is true. If feedback is true, and feedback is at the core of cybernetics, then at its core, cybernetics is true. Now, the more basic something is, the more applications it will have. And as I said, feedback is really basic. Because of the apparent all-pervasiveness of feedback, from its very beginning, cybernetics was framed as a meta-theory, the science of sciences, the theory of everything. Here is the problem. Cybernetics is true, and yet, as is so with all models, it's an incomplete truth. Does cybernetics account for how feedback takes place? It's built on the fact that feedback takes place. But really, how does it occur? Why does it occur? What is it that's actually doing the learning? What does cybernetics have to say about goodness? Is goodness merely that which gets a being closer to its goal? How does it know what its goal should be? Is progress the only virtue? Now, I'm not saying that I have answers to these questions necessarily, but surely you would expect a theory which claims to be a theory of everything to be able to answer all of these questions, and yet I contend that cybernetic theory does not adequately answer any of these questions, really. Cybernetics reduces everything to the most basic. Communication, control. Communication, control. Dogs, turtles, human beings, and whole nations are just machines. This is something that cyberneticists will actually say. The brain is not like a computer. The brain is a computer. Cybernetics is a totalistic worldview which presents everything, even nature itself, as if it were a man-made machine. 
Sure, nature and the human brain may be very complex machines that we can't yet replicate, but they are machines nonetheless, and machines operate on feedback, and we understand feedback, so it's only a matter of time until we can replicate them and exercise complete control over them. Such is the cybernetic promise. The logical end of this worldview is that man can put God on a microchip and then swallow him. So the issue with cybernetics isn't so much the technology that it spawns, but the worldview that it breeds. Unfortunately, the techtopian worldview, when paired with cybernetic technology, can become very powerful and very oppressive indeed. And it's this pairing between cybernetic technology and cybernetic ideology that I call the doomsday device. While our fancy new tools may make the problem more pressing now than ever before, the problem itself has been with us since before Plato gave us cybernetics 2400 years ago. The problem, I suggest, is the utopian propensity, insofar as those fighting for utopia are often willing to sacrifice entire nations to see their vision realized. And I believe warnings against this propensity are contained in some of humankind's most ancient myths. In Genesis, when humans attempt to build a tower which will reach to heaven to proclaim their dominion over creation, God confounds their language and scatters them across the earth. The Tower of Babel was a utopian project, symbolizing man's vain sense of control. To check this misplaced sense of control, divine reality interjects and destroys man's communication. In ancient Greece, there was Prometheus, who earned the scorn of Zeus for his love of humanity. Prometheus was the bringer of fire, and thus from fire, and from Prometheus, all subsequent technology followed. But what people often forget is that bringing humans fire wasn't Prometheus's worst offense. The gift of technology itself was not so much the issue. According to the playwright Aeschylus in Prometheus Bound, with his gifts of technology, Prometheus also gave the humans vain hope. Now, I don't know what Aeschylus meant by this, but I've got my own interpretation, and here it is. With technology came the belief that human beings could progressively transform their world into heaven and themselves into gods. Indeed, as he endures his punishment, Prometheus predicts that soon a time will come when his precious humanity will replace the gods as the active agents of reality. And yet, according to the gods themselves, this hope is in vain. I like this story because its moral is ambiguous. Who's right? Prometheus, who foresees the apotheosis of man? Or Zeus, who judges man eternally mortal? In this old play is the push and pull of utopianism, and central to it all is technology and man's view of its potential. Finally, we've got a story whose subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has an Enlightenment-era doctor use science and technology to fabricate a man a sort of biological robot, or primitive cyborg, in a way. Dr. Frankenstein is motivated by his desire to defeat death, to fix God's mistake. But in so doing, he succeeds only in bringing a living, breathing, walking death into the world. I'm interested in the nuanced conversation about technology. As I said, I'm not a Luddite, 
and I think that to accuse one of being such if one just points out potential problems with certain technologies and their purveyors is to argue against a straw man. I don't think the answer to the Tower of Babel story is to outlaw tower building, nor do I think that the answer to the Prometheus story is to outlaw fire-making because it'll eventually lead to nukes and TikTok. But I do think the answer to the Frankenstein story is accept death and don't make the monster, though. For better or for worse, technology is here with us. Cybernetics is here with us, as are all the technologies which follow from it. And that's that. However, I don't necessarily think that this means the sort of hyper-integrated, totalitarian, cybernetic society I'm warning against here is inevitable. In fact, computers, the internet, and even smartphones could play a role in confounding the creation of a virtual Tower of Babel, if we use them right. The proper conversation regarding man's relationship with technology must begin with a journey into the metaphysics of man. To understand technology and its place, we must first come to understand what humans are, and then what technology is. This is a momentous task, which no podcaster can hope to solve for you. It's a task to be undertaken in person, over beers, between joint puffs, and among friends. My concern today is this. We've all been promised godhood, yet by so readily and thoughtlessly abandoning our humanity in favor of a sort of mechanized life, in which our experience is no longer being mediated through the organic body and mind, but through man-made tools whose reproduction and maintenance is far more complicated and demanding than the organic body in that they are dependent on other tools... In doing that, we risk subjecting ourselves to the ultimate in regimentation and exploitation. Tools are to be used by men. If men turn themselves into tools, they damn themselves to perpetual usage by those who do not. Don't let me be misunderstood. I do not mean to suggest that the most fevered transhumanists won't take the upgrade in the end. I mean that it's worth considering whether or not your upgrade will confer to you the same degree of autonomy theirs does to them. Do not be so quick to lay down your sword and let them pound your brains into plowshares. What are these tools, actually? We must understand metaphysics and telos, being and ends. We do not. And it seems as if those building the tools don't want us to. A rare exception to this rule, I think, is Norbert Wiener himself. Wiener looked upon his science of cybernetics with great trepidation. He feared where it might lead and what it might do to the human race. It appears, ironically, that Norbert Wiener, the father of cybernetics, was not a techtopian. In closing, let us hear once more from the human use of human beings. Quote, Progress imposes not only new possibilities for the future, but new restrictions. It seems almost as if progress itself and our fight against the increase of entropy intrinsically must end in the downhill path from which we are trying to escape. A simple faith in progress is not a conviction belonging to strength, 
but one belonging to acquiescence and hence weakness. Unquote. Wow, I'm sick of doubt. Live in the light of certain south cruel bindings. The servants have the power. Dog men and their mean women pulling poor blankets over our sailors. I'm sick of dour faces staring at me from the TV tower. I want roses in my garden bower, dig. Royal babies, rubies, must now replace aborted strangers in the mud. These mutants, blood meal for the plant that's plowed. Waiting to take us into the severed garden. You know how pale and wanton thrillful comes death in a strange hour, unannounced, unplanned for, like a scaring, over-friendly guest you've brought to bed. Death makes angels of us all and gives us wings where we had shoulders smooth as raven's claws. Dress, this other kingdom seems by far the best Until its other jaw reveals incest And loose obedience to a vegetable law I will not go Prefer a feast of friends to the giant family 